Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. Steve Walsh here. Hello. Today is the first meeting of our book club. We'll be discussing Muriel Sparks' 1960 novel, The Ballad of Peckham Rye. And do you remember Olive Morris, a biographical anthology? We'd like to know what you thought about the books too. Yeah, we can't get like 30 fold-up chairs into my living room and invite people around to talk about it. That's just not practical no. on a number of levels. And then maybe next time, though. We'll... I'm not putting 30 people in my front <laughs> No way. We'll I've be... got a large co- uh, coffee percolator, but not that large. Not enough for, uh, you know, 30 coffees. I'm sure someone will host us, won't they? Do you reckon? Yeah. Yeah, we'll sort something out next time. But this time, it's, you know, from your living rooms, at your keyboards, and in our ear rolls. On Twitter, at SLHC. On com. if you click on the episode, maybe leave a comment under the episode and uh, let us know what you thought about the books maybe we get some discussion going facebook.com slash southlandhardcore as well southlandhardcore at gmail.com if you want to give uh, lengthy essay style expositions on your feelings on the books and if you want to buy The Ballad of Peckham Rye you can click the Amazon banner on southlandhardcore.com and buy it from there and we'll get uh, a few pence obviously if you live in Southwark it's in all the libraries if you want to buy Do You Remember Olive Morris You'll have to go to rememberolivemorris.wordpress.com or you can go to um, maybe a few of the Lambeth libraries, but certainly in the Carnegie Library on Hernhill Road, they've got a pile of it because it's a uh, small press, so it's not uh, it's not on Amazon. Next weekend, that's October the 4th, 5th and 6th, is Elifest, the Elephant Castle Festival. We will be in attendance, me more so than Steve, and we'll be recording, so look out for us. There's a lot going on over the three days. LFS.org. LFS with an F. You can see full listings there. And there's some brilliant stuff going on. I can't make most of it because I'm working all three days, annoyingly. No, but you're making a lot of it. I'm making as much as I can. But places will definitely be. It's the uh, subway tour on the Friday evening. Stephen Humphrey's Elephant and Castle slideshow and talk. And also the Wicker Man show. Performance and discotheque. On the Saturday we'll go to the Feast and to the Stock Market. Are you going to the Gorilla Gardening thing in the afternoon? Yeah, Gorilla Gardening. I'm gutted to be missing the Gorilla Gardening. I'm gutted to be missing the Treasure Hunt on Sunday as well. Yeah. Love a Treasure Hunt. I think I'm going to miss the Treasure Hunt as well. It's probably Clues. I love Clues. There's apparently there's a 3D printer in the Elephant Castle Shopping Centre. What? Yeah, exactly. So that's where you got to meet you can find it London's Brighton screening which I'm not sure if I'm going to catch but I'd love to see the Q&A at least hopefully and then on a Sunday evening there's a number of things going on we've seen the London the Model in Babylon a few times that's on at the Electric Elephant where the food will be incredible the film is fantastic so I would highly recommend going to that there's a closing party as well but where we will be on Sunday night is at the Crypt at St Peter's Church for the Elephant and Castle Quiz. South London Hardcore team, one quiz, one victory so far. (laughs) We'll be trying to sort of keep up our 100% record. Six people per team, so uh, form your own teams. See if you you can beat Steve in a... He's read all the Wikipedia pages relating to Elephant and Castle. And most of the Wikipedia pages that don't relate to Elephant Castle, so... He's got some of them printed out. (laughs) We'll be 
Vox popping as well. So if uh, a handsome man in a Southampton hardcore t-shirt approaches you with a microphone, ask him if he's seen me. <laughs> oh, and the skate stuff as well. There's a big skateboarding thing on the uh, Sunday as well, which I'd like to go and see as well. So. Yeah, I mean it's, it's a brilliant lineup. Really, really good. Yeah, we'll and- be enjoying it but also as I say we're, we're going to be putting together an episode for next week where we'll be talking to the organisers we'll be talking to people enjoying themselves at the festival and talking about our own responses to the festival as well I suggested that we did a book club um, quite early on I think and it was in conjunction with our episode on Enid Blyton which you can find in our episode guide the idea was that as part of the episode, we'd read one of Enid, Blyton book, Enid Blyton's books and talk about it. I chose The Magic Faraway Tree, uh, a book with a lot of positive memories from my childhood. Uh, uh, you know, recognised by many as a kid's classic. And you got, was it six pages, seven pages? No more than ten. No more than ten. And it was just... Little advanced for you, wasn't it? That was the problem. There's a lot of long words and <laughs> a lot of characters being there introduced were a lot at of once. Long made up words. <laughs> now the trouble with that was that I'd not really realised that Enid Blyton wasn't good. Yeah. Like before, but then I read that Enid Blyton wasn't good at writing, and I started reading <laughs> one of her books. I wasn't enjoying it. Like not, I, you know, not that I'm expecting to, um, you know, a kids' book to change my life necessarily. But I just kind of, I was just like, I can't see it. As I said at the time, I'm not, I didn't start this podcast to read books I'm not enjoying. Absolutely. See, I'd read it as a child and therefore could bring that into my reading as an adult. It was a nostalgic element mm. to it. But obviously reading it as a piece of work in your 30s, you sort of go, this isn't a good book, is it? It's not I was in my 20s enjoyable. when we did the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we sort of put the idea, and also there's, elements of time constraints the re- uh, reality of being able to read a book or some books in time to record a show so we sort of put it on the back burner but it's something we're looking at again now Nadim Ali I think on Twitter uh, asked us for yeah. South London related reading suggestions a new uh, but very enthusiastic listener yeah and uh, it's almost we didn't have a show for the week did we Steve there's was, an element of that. Yeah, and I, I was reading Do You Remember Olive Morris because it just grabbed me in the library. And I'd read The Ballads of Peckham Wright earlier in the year just for leisure. Yeah. But with one eye on the fact that in the future we could end up doing a book club episode. So here we are. Yeah, I read The Ballad of Peckham Wright earlier this year and I think I said to you at the time it's good and it's something we could possibly look at as a book club episode. It's also relatively short. It's sort of not quite novella. It's a, it's a slight novel, pages. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very... I don't know, it's it's concise in length, but it's quite sprawling, isn't it? Considering, you know, it's limited in its setting in that it is really based around the this right. particular place and a discrete group of people. But I don't know, it, it, there, there's a lot to it, I think, isn't it? It's very rich, I found. Did, let's get first things first. Did you enjoy it? That's right. <laughs> you know, strong characters. Blurb there for the new edition. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. No, I didn't. Uh, I, won't, I won't go around recommending it to people. Yeah, yeah. It's not. As you say, it's not going to change your life. But would you recommend? If someone said, 
mate, you know, you used to work in Waterstone, Steve. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if we mentioned it on the show, but you, I, I was thinking about how significant this is that you personally sold Mike Skinner of the streets a handful of slang books. Like that's, that's, you know, that's, that's uh, significant, but it's important to place it in context. Yeah, between was, the second and third albums. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was very much Mike Skinner on the, on the downslope. It wasn't sort of like I sold him these. This guy came in and uh, he had a, you know, uh, a very strong look to him. So when he turned up six months later, it turned out he was a trick. Now it was it was definitely Mike, and it was just sort of like, I say, between the second and third album. And if you've listened to the Third Street album, it, it is the output of someone who's clearly had writer's block and bought a load of slang books. It was I don't know. It's very from you though. From me, yeah. It's not my fault. Say uh, Waterstones. If someone came up to you with with the Battle of the Peckham Rye and said, "Should I buy this?" Yeah, definitely. It's the story of Dougal Douglas's arrival in Peckham and the effect he has on the people he meets while he's there. He's an odd character. He's a, a Scotsman who applies for a job in a local firm, essentially to work in human resources. But he makes it quite clear to the company and the guy who's employing him at the start that he sees his role to sort of marry art and industry mm. and that he's going to use his role within this company to examine the moral and spiritual state of the inhabitants of Peckham. And he's got this wonderful way of talking where it is very florid and it's very uh, intoxicating, isn't it? And he does, he sort of visit, meets various people through his work in the firm and also... Uh, rather than turning up to do uh, any sort of HR-related paperwork, he takes to the streets of Peckham and just uh, essentially quizzes the locals about their lives and involves himself in as many lives as possible, usually with disastrous results for the people whose lives he's involved with. Structurally, it's quite interesting because it opens with the fallout of his visit. There's a, I think he's on the first or second page... Uh, one of the characters says, this all would have been fine if Dougal Douglas had never turned up. And um, yeah, as I say, the rest of the book is is mostly him showing an interest and disrupting the lives of everyone he meets. He, he breaks up relationships, uh, causes people his jobs, you know, a huge amount of violence uh, surrounding him. A lot of it directed towards him as well. One of the things I liked about the book in terms of it being a, a, a book related to what we talk about on the show, is I thought it was a great blend of the reality of Peckham and the physical geography of Peckham and the mythology of Peckham and South London. So, again, quite early on, you see the characters visiting various pubs in Peckham, and it's this as a blend of pubs that exist like they, they start off at the Rye Hotel which still exists in yeah, this, still there, the, the Rye Pub um, they go to the White Horse which is a pub I've talked about on the show before uh, my family to this day like last weekend like my uncles and cousins would have been down there in the White Horse watching the All-Ireland uh, football final so it's a pub that, and like my dad used to manage the football team, so there's a lot of sort of links between my family and the world. So seeing it immortalised in print um, sort of made the thing really vivid for me. It does, it places you 
in Peckham very firmly. You can imagine, and it's sort of well, everywhere this. they go. I mean, they yeah, get Denmark Hill and Dulwich and uh, Nunhead, everything you know, with proper street names. You know, it's really rooted in the area. Yeah, absolutely. And Muriel Spark lived in Camberwell for nearly ten years. She uh, had a flat found for her by the story says she had a flat found for her by a local priest, which you'd imagine would have to be one of the priests at the Sacred Heart Church. It's like the main oh, she's Catholic, Catholic church she, yeah, in, right. in Campbell at the time. So you'd, you'd mm. assume that one of the priests at the Sacred Heart found this flat in... She lived in uh, Baldwin Crescent in Campbell. So yeah, she would have, you know, nine years to see these pubs, you know, get the bus from the Elephant Castle down to Peckham and wander around Camberwell. You know, the, the pub crawl itself goes from the Rye Hotel to the White Horse to the Morning Star, which is the Nags Head now, the Heat and Arms. But then they end up in the Harbinger, which is a pub that doesn't exist and has never existed in Peckham. But from the description in the book, sounds like it's on Denmark Hill. It sounds like it sort of uh, could possibly be uh, where the Fox on the Hill is now. and right. Yeah. So, but, you know, as I say, as you say, when they're talking about the journey in a thing, you can sort of visualise it. You can sort of go, yeah, that is something that you could do in a few hours. It's not, you know, when you watch, and this is uh, a very extreme example, but when you watch the film The Mummy, with uh, Brendan Fraser, uh, there's a bit. Well, no, this is very South London. There's a there's a bit where uh, they're fighting uh, on a number twelve bus. Oh yeah, right. And you sort of look at it and you go, "Why is that twelve going past the British Museum? Never do that. Twelve would never go past the British Museum." So uh, you know, it, it's things like, because sometimes take you know when I say take out from not to most viewers, they're not bothered. No. But you know, Obviously, in the same way, the as... mo- Prince of Thieves is probably the most extreme example. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Let's just walk from uh, Dover up to Nottingham. I don't know they're going to four hours. Do it in four <laughs> yeah, hours. Yeah. We might stop for some water, but... Just go past Hadrian's Wall. We're going that way. <laughs> <laughs> and as I yeah, say, things like that can take you out of a piece of work. Whereas with this, it really sort of drew me in. And you did get a feeling. It made it more vivid. And you got a feeling that you're in good hands here. And that the author has done... Well, I assumed on the research, but I've since found out lived there. So, you know, she's lived it. But set against that, you know, I don't know if Blake's ever mentioned, but there is a sort of a magic realism element to the story that sort of evokes the idea of, of Blake seeing angels at Peckham Rye. You know, she talks about this idea of Bodicea committing suicide in Peckham and being buried there and you're like there's nothing to suggest that's true it's purely uh you know myth and she repeats the idea of the tunnel in nunheads where the nuns escaped connected to um thing in peckham and again it's local mythology but blended against this really vivid and realized backdrop so the plot of the book is driven by dougal douglas's exploits but also the exploits of Douglas Dougal. And there's a real sort of theme of duality that runs throughout the book. You know, this guy who's going around wreaking havoc amongst the inhabitants while working for one firm also takes a job with their rivals to just increase his potential for creating havoc. And, and as I say, he's a, an interesting character once he 
engages with the other people he meets in the story. He's got um, a tremendous turn of phrase and worldview in terms of trying to comfort people. There's a great scene where um, this, this, is, uh, this woman's just sitting on the rye next to him and she's sobbing, talking about how she's had a rotten life. And his response is to go, it's not even over yet. It's it so done. much worse than yeah. this. I like that running running gag of uh, when anyone has an injury and illness is like, I can't deal with it. Yeah. Injury, I'm, it's my fatal flaw. <laughs> yeah, he breaks off his engagement because uh, his fiance is uh, prone to ailments. He's like, I can't be around her. She's, uh, you know, constantly ill. Similarly, um, another of the characters, I think it's Mr. Whedon, the guy who is in the factory, is just sort of talking about the mental strain that he's under, mostly caused by the antics of uh, Dougal in one way or another. And uh, he says to Dougal, he's like, I just feel like I'm on the verge of a breakdown. And Dougal's like, uh, that's worrying. I mean, you know, but the good news is some men are like skyscrapers. <laughs> yeah. And when they fall, it can be devastating. You're little more than a wee bungalow. <laughs> so he, he sort of brings comfort to these people, but in other ways, not at all. It reminded me a bit of, uh, it's, it's not purely comedy, but it reminded me a bit of an Ealing film, the way it's I, structured. I did, I, I did think of it as purely a very dark comedy. It made me think of, yeah, just an Ealing comedy, but also a lot of... You're going in and out of these companies, you know. Yeah, and, uh, but also uh, an Evelyn War novel. It's almost like an Evelyn, a blend of those sensibilities where you've got, you know, this disruptive protagonist who just sort of, particularly at this time, there's a lot in the book to do with class and aspiration. Mm. A lot of the characters have ideas and plans and this guy just sort of comes in and goes, you know, just lays seeds of doubt or otherwise completely destroys any dreams uh, they might have. And it's, you know, interesting to sort of see it as a snapshot of Britain's time. I mean, you say that's very much a, a theme for me in comedies as well. And also... Um, you know, there's a, a, a huge tradition of it in, in British comedy in general. The idea of aspiration and having your aspirations checked. So, like, you know, in Dad's Army, you've got Captain Mannering, who's this sort of blustering, aspirational middle-class man who's constantly undercut by his upper-class second-in-command. Uh, even things like Del Boy, to go to a sort of Peckham setting again, you know, this time next year we're millionaires. Obviously they ruined that by making them millionaires. <laughs> but the, when it was funny and when it worked as a comedy, it was the idea of these aspirations um, being checked. There's another nice element as well where you've got, um, it's another great character named Nellie Mahone, who uh, is uh, a, a drunkard, essentially, who everyone ignores... And she spends most of the book just sort of yelling at anyone who listens about how terrible this guy is. And no one wants to hear what she's got to say. But she's the only one that sort of spots him. She goes a little over top and it's this... Uh, her sort of language is where... Well, there's elements to it as well where there's an implication that Dougal Douglas is the devil come to play amongst people. Like, he's got this slight hump to his back that gets accentuated at certain points. And he's got these nubs on his head that he invites people to touch which he claims are his uh, horns that have been filed away but she Nelly's constantly comparing him to a demon and a devil and everyone just sort of writes her off until the end when she pretty much wrecked Peckham Do You Remember Olive Morris is a book that is the result of a project 
initiated by Ana Laura Lopez de la Torre, a woman from South America who moved to Brixton and noticed Olive Morris House, which is the Lambeth housing, one, one of the Lambeth housing buildings on Brixton Hill. Well, I think she first came across Olive Morris. She was doing research on protest and found... Yeah, she was in Peckham Library. Yeah, she came across the photograph of Olive Morris uh, with no shoes on, a uh, cigarette in her hand, holding up a placard that says, Black Sufferer, Fight Police Pig Brutality. It's a great photo, isn't it? Brilliant photo. There's a, yeah. I mean, just the people behind her as well. There's a guy rolling a cigarette behind her, another guy holding up a placard. That all, the only part of the placard you can see, it says Uncle Tom's. <laughs> but I think it was the two things. She came across this photo, and then she sort of, she'd already been to Olive Morris' house and never tied the two things up. Right. And set about finding out who Olive, Olive Morris was, essentially. Culminating in... A launch kind of event in for 2007 Black History Month. Olive Morris was a an activist for uh, for squatting, housing generally, civil rights really, racism, police brutality. It seems like she's just a, a, an extremely active, radicalised individual from early on. She joins the British Black Panther movement becomes involved in the squatting movement and becomes literally the face of the squatting movement uh, for a time. Her first sort of major public action seems to be in 1969. She's already a member of the British Black Panther Party at this point, so she's clearly someone engaged. But she sees a black man being stopped by the police for having a nice car, essentially. And she intervenes. It turns out the guy who's been stopped is... He's from the Nigerian High Commission. Yeah, he's he? not the Nigerian High Commissioner, but he's, he's connected to the Nigerian High Commission. So the chances are he's definitely has to have a very smart car, isn't he? But in the course of her intervention, she ends up being beaten by the police and goes, uh, ends up having to go to King's College Hospital to be treated. Apparently there's a photograph of her with the wounds and given... The fact that there's a lot of photographs in the book, I thought it was very surprising that that one wasn't in there. I don't know if it's been lost, mm. whatever. But that and that seems to have propelled her into e- even greater action. Yeah, as you say, um, she becomes an important figure in the squatting movement. Establishes a squat in Relton Road that, at various times in its history, becomes almost like a a resource for information, for food for people. She co-founds the first black specialist bookshop in Brixton on the same site. It becomes a headquarters for women's rights, for gay rights, activism. Just this huge sort of focal point for radicalism and rights. Yeah, very much like the Black Panthers in America... You know, you get this idea that it's just people were, uh, I say just, but you know, exclusively uh, fighting, you know, the power, yeah. if you will. But the social actions of it was a huge part of it, you know, educating people, feeding people. And it seems to be a similar kind of philanthropic uh, operation. She's born in Jamaica in 1952. 
moves to London in 1961 and initially lives with a family in Battersea. And obviously is now seen as being synonymous with Brixton in terms of the focus of her activism, swatting, uh, police protests. But she does travel, ex- not extensively, but to very interesting places. I mean, she goes to Manchester to study, and while she's there, helps to found some very important groups relating to women's rights and uh, black civil rights while she's up there. But then, in 1972, before she goes to university, her and her friend Liz Obie, who's key to this book being produced, uh, Liz Obie, at the time the book's being put together, holds the Olive Morris archive, which she'd got from Olive's longtime partner and sort of added to herself. And in 1972, Olive Morris and Liz Obie hitchhiked to Algeria to find Eldridge Cleaver, who was a key member of the American Black Panther movement who was living in exile at the time. So, you know, this is... You know, also, it's 1972, so it's not... You're not easy jetting somewhere and then just getting the megabus. I don't think they didn't make it all the way, did they? They didn't, but it's still, you know, a remarkable thing to undertake. And similarly, in 1977, I think while she's at university, and you'd imagine it would be to do with her uh, time at university, she visits China and yeah. writes a very extensive report on what she finds there. So she's, you know, it, and, you know, the, 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 the tragedy of her story is she dies very young. She yeah. dies at 27. But you can't argue with the amount of activity she yeah, packed into her life. life. Yeah, it's incredible. And the book itself reflects this. It, it looks at her life and legacy in a number of different ways. Yeah, it's a combination of uh, oral history, oral biography, photographs, poetry. And I think it works really well. It, it does. I mean, there were, there were bits that I enjoyed much more than others. Yeah, so talk yeah, about certainly, that, but, yeah, yeah, certainly uh, a couple of dips. <laughs> but really nicely put together. There's a uh, lottery funding behind it, isn't there? Yeah. No, it's a gorgeous edition. Really... You know, well bound, nicely designed, very simple design but effective, mm. and the, the the contents as well, you know, are pretty comprehensive. I mean, there's two sides of it, really, isn't there? And people are quite clear at some points they're not just talking about Olive Morris. Yeah, it's a no, kind absolutely. of uh, biography side of it. Yeah, which you know, you think someone dies at 27, especially say, even you know, in the 70s, before you know, pre-internet days. You know, it's people's people get forgotten. Yeah. You know, even even having your name on on a building, people got, people who work there probably had no idea who she was. I think there was some kind of plaque. There, what there is now, yeah. And there because it's there was a campaign to get kind of a, a plaque put back up. It's kind of on the window now. Yeah, it's a permanent memorial within the building, isn't it? Oh, is there? Because I went on the window. I went there t- uh, past today, and there's um, a picture of her and uh, and um, a, a sort of one paragraph biography uh, you know and the dates whatever just like kind of transferred on the window oh, whatever right, the, okay. uh, the phrase is so there's always been kind of a little something but you know the details of people people's lives you know it, they disappear didn't they um, but the other side of it in the book is is a valuable look at 70s radicalism yeah yeah in so many forms you know and especially in South London in Brixton specifically yeah. But also the legacy as well, the fact that there is an ongoing 
collective dedicated to remembering their life. And also, the yeah, and and also the the inspiration role she's played to women, you know, 20, 30 years on. I thought uh, Neil Kenlock's photos were great. I thought the photos were great, but it really just look examining it critically to talk about the photograph of her after the police beating and not have it in the book seems yeah but there are who knows if they are, you know they must not have had it available they would have put oh, it in if they obviously. Had, yeah, yeah. but then at the same time amongst the the photographs of olive herself and other people protesting there's just portraits of famous black people yeah, that was a bit strange, and that's very. It's almost like it's padded out. That I it, think it's like look, look what look what photos Neil Cannon has got. Yeah, but that's not just, what I'm hearing this book. Well, for. I suppose when the the Black Cultural Archives opens next year in Brixton, yeah, that stuff will be there, wouldn't it? Absolutely, and it'll be more relevant there, maybe. That, and that's the thing. It just seemed it really sort of distracted me in the book, where I was like, as you say, the section was, and it was. They made it very clear it was a whole thing about these are the photographs, of Neil, and I was like, this isn't what I'm in this book for. I don't need to see a photograph of C.L.R. James. Show me more photographs of people actually involved in protest. Yeah. And, 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 and these aren't, you know, uh, randomly picked. These are, uh, you know, black people involved in activism. But still, it just seemed tenuous to sort of go, Olive Morris is a black activist. Here's some more black activists. As opposed to focusing on the ideas of the book itself. What was relevant was uh, the flyer she'd written that was critical of the anti-Nazi league. Which well, I thought was uh, sort of, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to say ahead of its time. Yeah. Where it's the idea is that, you know, yeah, it's it's all well and good opposing open fascists, but really we need to tackle institutionalized racism yeah. in the police, you know, the council, education, and you know, you're not doing that by just focusing on people who are just waving union jacks and shouting racial slurs. Yeah, she says, you know, attacking. The National Front is attacking the symptoms, but you're not attacking the, uh, attacking the actual problem itself. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, it's really valuable in the book. There's two pieces of writing by Olive Morris herself. One which is a, a critique of the activities of the Anti-Nazi League, which, as you say, I thought was brilliant and spot on. And it's still relevant today, you know. Mm. The fact is, you know, people are sort of talking about anti-fascist action and, like, doing counter-demos, and these were all valuable against things like the idea. But it's just, you, you need to a- attack the ideas that's mm. at the heart of what they're saying, go into that because they, they don't stand up at all. And, you know, we've, we're, still, we're still dealing with, you know, on our, our local news special recently, we're still talking about, uh, you know, police officers that were involved in smear campaigns against the Lawrence family. Mm. This is still an ongoing thing. The, the, you, you've still got this idea of institutional racism that you know, uh, and societal racism that is a bit much bigger problem than meatheads waving a flag. I don't want meatheads waving a flag, but I mean, if it keeps them, you know, happy and you know, they, they've got a, yeah. they've got a democratic right to do it. But I'm much more concerned with societal. Yeah, quality that's embedded into the system. Having, you know, opinions of kids, you know, yeah. based on their race, you know, that's a lot more uh, relevant. Her other piece on her visit to China, I thought was similarly interesting, but incredibly flawed. Naive, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, just uh, a real 
romanticizing. And yeah. you know, obviously for us, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, she's there in nineteen seventy seven, um, and you know, it, it's accepted now amongst sort of uh, socialists and left leaning people that the the Soviet Union and China in this period, even up to quite recently, got a very soft ride considering the actual fates of common people in those countries. Mm. You know, it didn't take long for a ruling elite to make itself known and live very different lives to the people who are out there. And she's talking about, you know, agricultural advances and industrial advances. And, you know, as we know today, the reality of life in China is not a worker's paradise. She got to visit China, which is obviously giving her a perspective and a viewpoint on things, but she doesn't make it very clear in the piece, but you'd imagine it would have been a very heavily guided and led journey around China. I don't think she would have been allowed to wander around. And again, the language barrier, you know, it's not like you're going to go up and talk to Chinese people about their everyday life. You're going to have an interpreter there who's you know, supplied by the government. The sort of going, they, do you know what? They're loving it. They're loving <laughs> these new ploughs we got on. They are having a whale of a time. So you've got works by her, which are valuable, and then works about her. And again, it, it's very dependent on who's writing it, the, the value and the, the content that you're going to get out of it. I think the first piece in the book is by Liz Obi, who was her friend and partner in many of these endeavours. And that's really important to sort of get that sort of perspective. Olive Morris can't talk about herself, but Liz Obi was there firsthand for these things. And she's prepared to examine the legacy as well. She talks about the irony of Olive Morris House now. You know, at the time, they were fighting for people's rights to have a place to live and their the action they took was squatting to sort of use abandoned buildings to house people that couldn't get somewhere of their own then in the 80s the local council housing offices are named after olive morris and this seems like it's an appropriate tribute in that the arm of the government that's dedicated to housing people is named after this woman who was all about housing people since then, with the decline in social housing, they the horror housing people. No, this is the thing. All you know, you would it would have been a point. Maybe it's a better tribute now, in that you know you haven't got a hope unless you're squatting. But there would have been the horrible moment where you know you had the poll tax come in, and your poll tax bills would have come from Olive mm. Morris House. That wasn't what she would have wanted, was it? On the other end of the scale, you've got people who didn't know Olive Morris, and that's interesting and valuable in and of itself people talking about the, the legacy that they feel has been handed down to them by this woman in her actions but then there was just one terrible piece that was essentially an interview between a woman who clearly just doesn't get on with computers <laughs> yeah. and the woman who runs the blog and pretty much every question was why have you done a blog computers yeah. are well hard one of the questions is uh and with the HTML, it's like, this is not relevant at yeah. all. It's, you're just sort of reading this going, there's nothing yeah, really about Olive Morris. I, I read it in detail, just so I couldn't believe <laughs> that you're you sort of reading it, this. Yeah. And it's sort of going, um, but, and, it's, and you know, I, I'm not entirely sure about when the book was published, but it really... 2009. Sort of, right. But, and this is the thing, there's a bit where they're sort of like, uh, 
they're talking as if the internet's a bit of a fad. Mm. The woman's sort of what, like, aren't you worried that it could disappear? Well, WordPress. <laughs> You're worried about WordPress. I think she's sort of worried that if she presses delete at the wrong <laughs> time, the internet goes off. Uh, and it just, it was a really odd piece to have mm. in there because it wasn't really related to any of the themes of the book at all. And as I say, it just seemed to be one woman's concern about blogs not being permanent. I don't know. There were some other bits sort of around that part as well, talking about the value of archiving uh, versus, you know, history is passed on. Uh, but I, 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 I think that's much more yeah, related I think that's, to the yeah. book. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I yeah. thought that was at the edge of it. Absolutely. And then that just went too far with the uh, blog. But with stuff. things like that, it, it intrigued me because, you know, similar to, to our premise of the show where it's about this very definite, concrete thing, but we use it to, to sprawl amongst other things. You, you can look at the activities of uh, a radical in the 70s and you can sort of go, well, how do we examine those legacies today? Where are they recorded today? So there are, there's, you know, uh, a piece all about visiting the feminist library and finding out where you can there and just photographs of people trawling mm. through an archive. And it's essentially about archives and their uses, yeah. which is not directly related to the things, but I think is definitely relatable and, and, and worthwhile. Similarly, with um, talking about appropriation and uh, whose history is this, you know, I think, is it Liz Obie when the lady first approaches her? Is it? Uh, yeah, she's like, why? Latin lady. It's like, why this white lady's coming to, yeah. you know. Asking about my friend. Yeah, yeah. this is not your history sort yeah. of thing. So there's, there's some interesting uh, debates. And in terms of things that aren't directly related, but are definitely worth investigating, there's a, a fantastic piece about soul power in Britain. And contrasting it with mm. the rise of the same sort of uh, activities in America. And this sort of brilliant article where the woman's explaining the, the form that it took in terms of uh, embracing your cultural heritage and, you know, allowing your hair to grow naturally and, and looking at the, the music and the cuisine from your country and allowing that to be something that you're, you're, you know, you're proud of took the same form in America and the UK that had very different meaning you know the, the, the obviously the huge difference between the black experience in America and the UK is the legacy of slavery in America this very definite strata of the history of black people in America that is never going to be erased is never going to be you know overturned or forgotten you know uh there's, you know, intermittent talks of reparations, which at one point were 40 acres and a mule and would be getting on for possibly billions or trillions now. You'd basically have to, like, hand over a chunk of the country and mm. that's not going to happen. Whereas in the UK, there were links to slavery but and, and, and elements of slavery, but, you know, we don't worry much. It, and also not, wasn't really on, on our turf. And not, it, not that no. British weren't complicit in it. No, absolutely. But it, it's very different if you've grown, if people lived as slaves yeah. in the place that their ancestors now live. Yeah. And it's like they talk about um, uh, the soul stuff um, and the activism in America being rooted in Africa. Yeah. Whereas in Britain, it's it goes back to the Caribbean. Yeah. You absolutely. know where it's a, it, and it makes it, that is sort of uh, one of the kind of details that makes the two things very different. It was very insightful. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. I think my favourite, my two favourite pieces in the book, though, were from uh, the same author, Kimberly Springer, who did a piece early on called Stepping Into the Struggle, which was about Olive's early activities in 
intervening in police actions and squatting and establishing uh, radical communities. Um, but she does a, a fantastic piece later in the book. And as I say, that early piece is very much embedded in what the book's about. But she does a piece later on that's tangential but fascinating. It's called um, Black Radical Women and Joy. And it's an examination of what radical action can mean, particularly for women of colour. And she talks about how there's a, a, a romantic idea of activism and what you're going to do and you, how you're going to change the world. But the reality is it's exhausting and it's a grind. And you're taking on, you know, it's all well and good to talk about taking on the establishment, but think about what that means. You're taking on the establishment. You're going to take on this huge organisation that's much more resourced, much more funded than you can ever hope to be. So you've got to be really smart about how you're going to work against them. And she touches upon that, you know, the value of icons in terms of having a rallying point, having, you know, a person for, to inspire other people, but then the dangers of icons, you know, relating it particularly to, to Olive, you know, you can, you can, as you said earlier, fetishise certain people and forget about the people just doing the humdrum stuff. You know, yeah, it's all well and good you being out there with... Uh, a, a placard but there's also value in the people that are just closing envelopes and sending off petitions and doing you know the work that isn't going to be as, as glamorous necessarily but is uh, incredibly valuable but what was nice about the piece was the fact that she uh, emphasises joy and she's like you've got to take joy in the simple things in being the everyman, the, the the person who's out there doing the grind, doing the, the the tedious, repetitive stuff, and knowing that when you've finished that work, it's going to be of as great value as anything that makes, you know, the newspapers or the telly or the cover of the Squatters' Handbook. As we said earlier, it's available uh, from rememberolivemorris.wordpress.com and it's also at the Carnegie Library and presumably other Lambeth libraries and you can get it out or buy it from there. I mean, fingers crossed that WordPress is still up because... <laughs> I highly recommend it. I thought it was really, really good. I thought it was tremendous. Really, really enjoyable and really sort of inspirational as well. Just the, the, the seeds of the project. Mm. Really intriguing. Yeah. The idea that someone can just read a person's name and go, Who? And then from that, go, wow, you know, look at what she's done. Let's celebrate this. Can you use uh, Brixton Pounds in the Carnegie Library? I don't know if you can build she's up. She's on it. She's on the £1 note of the first edition. But the trouble with Brixton Pound is if you buy them, they're really to put on the wall, aren't they? Yeah. You have to kind of buy digital ones. I just want to end, Steve, with something kind of completely tangential and anecdotal. Um, Olive Morris House was renamed... Or named even in 1986, right? So today, me and Lakeisha were walking through like the back streets in Brixton, and Lakeisha goes, "That's the one o'clock club I went to." So I look over, and there's a mural on the wall of a black drummer, and then and I thought, "That's one of the um, Ginger Baker, one of Ginger Baker's top four guys." And I look up, and it says in big letters, "Max Roach." Right, she went to Max Roach one o'clock club, and and it put the two things together immediately. You know, um, Jam in Brixton. Yeah, there's that park there that goes all the way up in little bits yeah, yeah. up to the Brixton Academy almost. Yeah, that's called Max Roach Park. 
1986, it was named Max Roach Park. And Max Roach, the drummer, first record that Ginger Baker from New Elton ever listened to, came and opened it. Was he a local? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what the link is. Yeah. Because yeah, I only re- only discovered this today and did a quick Google. Like on his Wikipedia page, it says he came over and opened it because he was over later that year. Yeah, because he's I American. Can't see, yeah, he's American, yeah. That's I don't thing, really like, see any when, kind of link. When we were watching the Ginger Baker film, it never occurred to me anyone that Max Roach would have had any connection to South No. But it's just yeah, so a like, tribute. But there's a, like a, you know, Brixton's kind of, there's a leaflet on the Brixton mural trail. I mean, it's all about murals in it, Brixton. But yeah, there's a big Max Roach mural. So I'll have to look into that further. But uh... Another tangential mention as well. Um, a councillor in Brixton has suggested a, a, a musical hall of fame to run alongside the Brixton Academy. I don't know if you caught any of this online over the weekend. Yeah, I saw you suggesting polystyrene. Yeah, definitely put polystyrene there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they, Bowie's the obvious one, isn't Bowie's it? The Sharon Osbourne. <laughs> they mentioned Sharon Osbourne and I was like outrageous yeah. yeah I was like you're not going to mention Paul Don't Spiring but you're going to mention Sharon Osbourne if you already get into uh, Sharon Osbourne let us know your thoughts on the two books if you've read either of them do you remember Olive Morris I mean it's unlikely any of our listeners do isn't it not necessarily you think we're getting ex-Black Panthers listening to us I hope, I hope so. so that is our demographic that's the whole point that's the demographic we're really desperately trying to hit Black just, just, just a little shout out to listeners if you're not a Black Panther please turn off mm. I don't know what you're doing here it's, it's, uh... another shout out to listeners do fight the power at all times always always